Today's reading comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. You may be seated. All right, as you're seated, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask you that you would keep us mindful of the presence of your spirit with us. That because of your love for us, and because of the sufficient work of Jesus, atoning for our sin, dying in our place, and rising to new life, we look at scriptures like this with great hope, knowing that you are with us, strengthening us, enabling us, God, to live lives that would glorify you in every way. So we pray, Lord, that we would have ears to hear the truth, and that, Lord, we would have hearts that would rise up in thankfulness for your grace, and that, God, you would give us a resolve to serve you in every area of our life, Lord, that you might be glorified. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. What we're going to look at today are the words of Jesus as it concerns the issue of lust. And here is how I would like to approach it. Three simple points by way of outline. First, I want us to look at what you have heard it said, meant in the first century when Jesus is dealing with it here in the Sermon on the Mount. Secondly, I want us to look at what you have heard it said might mean for us today in the 21st century. And third, I want us to look and we'll just develop three ideas on how we can deal with our lust. You have heard it said, first century. You have heard it said today, 2020, the city of Vancouver. And then three ideas that we can develop to help us deal with lust. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You just heard it. Let me read it again. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, This could be the shortest sermon I've ever preached because the text does not need a lot of explanation. Uh, On the other hand, though, if you've been around Christ City for a while, you know that the preachers here have an ability to preach at great lengths, no matter how simple the text is, and so this will not be the shortest sermon I've ever preached. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. If you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, you know that this is commandment number seven. God gave the commandment to Moses as he was up on the mountain. You can find this in Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5. But here, teaching at the top of a different mountain, you have Jesus. A different time, you have Jesus. Disciples sitting at his feet. Crowds surrounding him. And he does not just receive the law from God, but he actually begins to issue new teaching in this way to highlight the essence of it, the truth of it wants to take his listeners into a deeper understanding of the will of God with our relationship or with relationship to our sexual purity. Um, Genesis is the first book of the Bible, and all the way from Genesis onwards, we see the Bible reveal that human sexuality is a gift from God given to us for procreation and pleasure within the confines of a covenant marriage between one man and one woman to the exclusion of all others. There are churches that are down on human sexuality. We are not. We think it is a wonderful gift. This is the revelation of Scripture to us on the topic. The problem is, is we as human beings in a fallen state, sinful and rebellious against God, take the gift that he has given us 
and we twist it into something and live it out contrary to his revealed will. That's why we have one of the Ten Commandments being do not commit adultery. Having a sexual relationship with somebody who is not your spouse. And what Jesus is doing here in this teaching, in the Sermon on the Mount, in, in a way, is transcending the letter of the law given to Moses in the Ten Commandments to go beyond the act of outward adultery to deal with the deeper-rooted issue of lust in the heart. Again, look at verse 27. It says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay, Jesus says, You have heard it said, but I say to you. Notice that Jesus does not talk like other prophets. He does not quote scripture and say, thus saith the Lord. He says, I say to you. He doesn't talk like the other teachers. He's not like the other prophets. He's not like the other teachers because Jesus is Lord. He is actually the creator of human sexuality. He is the creator of the human heart. He is the one who knows that any adulterous sexual act does not begin with the physicality of that act. He knows that it begins in the eye and the heart, and he wants to speak to it. And he knows that any lingering lustful thought, that lustful intent, that enticing desire to long sexually after someone who is not your spouse, he knows ultimately that this will lead to death, destruction. It's not just the full-blown act of adultery that Jesus is after here. He's looking at someone, talking to people, and he's looking at the idea of the lustful intent of the heart. Scott McKnight, he said, sexual relations begin in the eye. The look to desire is about intentionally fostering sexual temptation and arousal through the imagination. Jesus is against sexual fantasizing with an inappropriate person. Jesus' brother James understands the way that sin leads to death. And he says in chapter 1, verse 13, he says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so what Jesus is getting at here in the Sermon on the Mount is that a lustful desire begins in the eyes, it gets into the heart, it gives birth to sin, and when it is fully grown, that sin leads to death. Christ said, you can't play around with lust. You can't toy with it. You can't try and manage it. You can't keep it lingering around you as though it's okay and will not lead to death. Lust will rob you of God's plan for your flourishing life and your wholeness in Christ. This is not strictly in the text. It's dealing with men, and there's reasons behind that culturally. It's not unique to men. This is inclusive to men and women. Jesus says everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. We can translate that as well for women. In his heart, the heart being the central focus of a person's inner life, it's the center of one's very person, right? In his heart, in her heart. See, addressing sinful desire prior to it becoming a physical sexual act, it, it actually, Jesus here is changing the way we understand person-to-person -person relationships 
And it's actually intended to be a sign of the new way we relate to each other in the kingdom of heaven. What would have been taught by the religious leaders of the day, the you have heard it said, was a prohibition against the physical act of adultery, which obviously Jesus is here agreeing with. But that gives a fairly narrow definition to sexual sin and a conveniently broad definition of sexual purity. Basically, it's only the outward act that they were worried about. And Jesus is saying, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, you shall not look upon someone with a lustful intent. Jesus is saying, this is not so in my kingdom. He's saying, not only is the physical act of adultery wrong, he's saying, I'm talking about the dehumanizing act of staring at somebody and thinking about them with lustful intent. Now, this was a countercultural ethic in its time, just as it is today. And, and you need to hear me on this as well. Lust is not looking at somebody and noticing that they're beautiful. That's not what Jesus is here condemning. Lust is looking at someone and objectifying them in a sexual manner. Okay, it's looking at them in order to lust. Uh, Frederick Dale Bruner said, all looking has a purpose. And the looking that Jesus condemns here specifically is lustful looking. Staring with the intent to possess or at least to burn the sexual desire. The other person is no longer really a human being. She or he is now simply kindling. Tinder, let the reader understand. Hmm. I'm deleting that off your phone right now. She or he is now simply kindling. Tinder, a thing, a way for one to enjoy oneself. And Jesus says to this, not in my kingdom. He's saying in my kingdom, in the kingdom of heaven, we do not objectify or dehumanize human beings created in the image of God by gazing upon them with lustful intent. Now let me be doubly clear because I, I don't want to wound a sensitive conscience here. Some of you might hear what I'm saying and assume that that means that you can never notice if someone is attractive. Look, the first thing I noticed about my wife when I first met her was not her wonderful personality. Okay? It was not her godly demeanor. Do you know what I'm saying? I was attracted to her. I am attracted to her. That is a gift from God. There's a holy way to notice that someone is beautiful in a way where if you're single, you say, I'd like to take you for a cup of coffee. Okay? You notice that someone's beautiful. I was attracted to her. And her glasses were not that good, and she also was attracted to me. And I said, we should marry quickly before I age poorly. <laughs> I was attracted to her. Within the confines of a covenant marriage between one man and one woman to the exclusion of all others, it's glorious. It's when we take that desire and we pervert it and we twist it. See, Jesus is not condemning noticing that somebody's attractive. He's condemning the dehumanizing, lustful looking that objectifies another human being and reduces them down to their sexuality. You have heard it said in the first century is what Jesus is dealing with. But what have we heard said here in the 21st century? Look at the text again. You have heard that it was said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
know, Jesus is responding to the cultural teaching of the day around the idea of adultery and lust, but all under the banner of sexual purity before God. You've heard it said, but I say to you. Okay? We live in a vastly different culture, obviously, with regards to sexuality and sensuality and premarital sex and pornography and advertising and media and the hookup culture and same-sex relationships and polyamory and just what is generally regarded as acceptable by the wider population. It is obviously a different day than it was 2,000 years ago when Jesus was teaching this. But the heart of the matter is still the matter of the heart. When I was thinking through this text this week, I thought, you know, what are the things that we have heard said about our sexuality in the 21st century? Um, the, the, the culture that we live in is so pervasively just infiltrated with ideas that are unbiblical with regard to human sexuality. It just, it just is. Um, David Foster Wallace, the late great author David Foster Wallace, he famously said this. He tried to help people understand the culture they were living in and, and the culture they were at times embodying by saying something. He told a little story where he said there were two fish swimming along, two fish were swimming, and they, they met uh, an older fish who was swimming toward them. And as the older fish got toward them, he said to the two younger fish, he said, hey, boys, how's the water today? And the, and the one younger fish looked at the other one after they passed the older fish and he said, what is water? See, we are absolutely immersed in a culture that is antithetical to the biblical revelation on what it means to be a human being in a sexual way. Are we aware of the water we're swimming in? The cultural moment that we live in is predominantly one of post-Christian secularism, which comes with a number of assumptions that are grounded in the false belief that there's no such thing as truth. Now, that in and of itself, that sentence could take the rest of my time to unpack. I'm not going to do that. What I want to do is give you some simple illustrations of what I mean. This is the water we swim in. Okay? I'm just going to give you four secular talking points that you hear all the time. This is the water we swim in today. Four cultural assumptions. One, you need to be true to yourself. This is what we've heard. You have heard it said, number two, that you have to do what makes you happy. Number three, that no one has the right to tell anyone else what is right for him or her. And four, you should be free to live in any way as you want as long as you're not hurting anyone else. Okay, nobody questions these assumptions, right? Like when you're sitting around tomorrow morning at the office and you're kind of catching up before the workday starts and everybody's making a coffee in the, in the staff room and you're having just maybe getting a glass of water or whatever and they're going, hey, you just got to do you, man. You got to be true to yourself. And everybody goes, oh, yeah. It's an assumption today. It's the water we swim in, Christ City. The problem is none of those four secular cultural assumptions are in line with the teaching of Scripture. Now, I've deconstructed all four of these at different times because I think it's fun. I think it's helpful. But let me just apply them quickly to our sexuality, okay? First, you have heard it said you need to be true to yourself, okay? No, you don't. Again, this could be a short sermon, but it's not. Okay, you're not qualified for the job of knowing what being true to yourself actually means. You need to recognize that there is a creator and sustainer of all things, that he's the Lord of the universe, and that he loves you and his will for you is good. Like, you are not a reduced vision or version of yourself because you serve Jesus. You are actually an expanded, more radiant version of yourself because you know him. 
He's not putting rules and boundaries around you to limit your enjoyment of life. He is putting rules and boundaries around you that will cause you to flourish in the way you're intended to flourish. At the heart of sin, and this is the condition we're born into, Part of sin is this desire to redefine truth and morality. That means to redefine what is right and what is wrong, what is true and how to live. And with that comes a desire to redefine who we are. And this is what people generally mean when they say you need to be true to yourself. So we say things like that. We, in our limited understanding of what it means to be human, think the best thing we can do is just to live into whatever desire is in our heart. Though it be contrary to the will of God, that is the water we swim in. So we elevate the authenticity of self over and against our identity as people created in the image of God. And when we do that, we reject the truth of God about who he says we are and how we're called to live. And we exchange that truth for the lie of the secular assumption that you just got to be true to yourself. Second, you have heard it said. You've got to do what makes you happy. You've got to do what makes you happy. The, the problem here is that you are assuming you understand what will make you happy. You are the one who has to do the hard work that you're not qualified for to define ideal happiness, and then you'll build your lifestyle on what you think will get there. But again, that flies in the face of the commands of God. Who wants your happiness in a more passionate way than you want it for yourself? Do you believe the goodness of God toward you in Christ that you would believe that he wants your happiness more passionately than you want it yourself? Just think about this. If, you, if, you, if we have an incorrect, twisted, or distorted view of what will make us happy, then just think adultery. If I think that will make me happy, then I will build pathways to achieve that happiness and I will exchange the truth of God about who I am and how I'm called to live for the secular lie that I need to just do whatever makes me happy. And I'll be willing to deny Jesus and his revealed will for my sexuality. It crushes my flourishing and my life in him. Robs me of joy. You might think that lust is making you happy and, and somehow you're justifying this before God. And we live by our own autonomous will in this way. And at the end of the day, that self-defined happiness, that desire to grab a hold of something we define, that, Jesus says, will lead you to destruction. Third, you have heard it said, no one has the right to tell anyone else what's right or wrong for him or her. Okay, I love this one. Have you ever gone to the airport? Okay, you go to security? Take off your shoes, your belt, your hat, your sweater. Something beep and still. Yeah, I have a titanium pin in my finger. This must be a sensitive thing. Okay, go back. You are under authority all the time. You think that nobody else should define what's right or wrong for anybody else? Like, you have heard it said, no one has the right to tell anyone else what is right for him or her. Try to drive 150 kilometers an hour down Canby Street. Someone will tell you what's right or wrong for you and the people around you. You are under authority. Bring that one into the lunchroom tomorrow. We're all under authority. 
whose authority are we submitting to? That's the question. We're all under authority. I'm not suggesting here that Christians should just kind of roam around the city trying to police the morality of our culture. That is not our job. And I want to be very clear because if you come away from this saying that, I will find you. Okay, we preach the grace and love of God to us in Christ, and we share that with people who do not yet know him. Our job is not policing the morality of those who do not know Jesus. Okay, my point is Jesus is Lord. That means he's Lord of your sexuality. He's Lord of your eyes. He is Lord of your heart. He is Lord of your web browser. He has a will for your sexuality that is revealed in Scripture. And if the water you're swimming in says that nobody in your life, follower of Jesus, has the ability to challenge you with regard to the way you're living out your sexuality, you need another reading of Scripture. That's the, that's the point. There is a revealed will for how we are to live this out individually and as a community. Fourth, you've heard it said, you should be free to live any way you want as long as you're not harming another person. This one makes sense in some ways. Like, I'd rather live next door to a person who says that we should live any way we want as long as we're not harming anyone because hopefully they wouldn't harm me. But that flies in the face of what Jesus is saying here in the text. The lust of the heart completely contradicts this. There is no sin, and we need to be remembered, or we need to, to be reminded of this. There is no sin that we commit against another person before we have first committed it against God. He is the first offended party anytime there is any sin. You've heard it said that you should be free to live any way you want as long as you're not harming another person. How about the heart of God our Father? Are we treading upon his kindness and his grace in the way that we live? We just have to ask ourselves the difficult question. Because lust is dehumanizing, it therefore inherently harms the other. And you might say, oh, this is secret, it's in the heart, nobody knows what's in my mind, nobody knows the meditation of my heart. I'm just telling you, it is dehumanizing the other person. And when you continually, systematically, and systemically dehumanize people and reduce them down to the base level of what they can do for you sexually, it will hurt your relationship. You are harming the other created in the image of God, beloved of the Father. Being objectified and dehumanized as the object of a lustful fantasy in the mind of another does damage to the person's soul. Being captivated by lust and in bondage to it is fundamentally harming you can't play with it. You've heard it said, what it meant in the first century. You have heard it said, what it means for us in the 21st century. But let's develop some ideas on how we can deal with our lust. Let's develop some ideas on how we can deal with our lust. Matthew chapter 5, verses 29 and 30, Jesus gives this away. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. What kind of go, man, 
man, Jesus, like you're going to the jugular here. Yeah, so is lust. It's seeking out to destroy you. The enemy, the flesh. Satan will come after you to destroy you. You go, oh my gosh, you found a church that believes in Satan and hell? Yeah. Jesus goes after the jugular on this because sin does too. He wants to eat him up like lust. Notice I said let's develop three ideas on how to deal with our lust. I didn't say let's talk about this if it's a problem for you. Because my assumption is that it's a problem for you. And there's no one, well, I won't say in these rooms. There is nobody on this platform right now who is not subject to dealing with temptation toward lust. Nobody up here. Uh, I read a quote this week. I can't remember who it was from. So it'll become mine. If you think you're not subject to fall and sexual sin, then you think that you're holier than David, stronger than Samson, and wiser than Solomon. What that means is you're not. Every single person in this room we need to know how to deal with this when the temptation comes, okay? Tear it out, cut it off, throw it away. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Tear it out, cut it off, throw it away. Jared Wilson, wonderful author, he said, Jesus would not use the language of chopping off a hand or plucking out an eye if the habitual indulging of lust was some little old thing you could manage keep to yourself. Jesus exaggerates here. He uses hyperbole here to make a point. The point is that it's better to be violent in your attempt to put the sin of lust to death than it is to be passive and indulgent and then be condemned. Christ said, I'm saying this, the sin of lust is ravaging the church of Jesus Christ all over the world. And apparently it was a problem 2,000 years ago. Sin of lust is robbing you of your joy and flourishing and wholeness in Christ. And we need to put it to death. And there's obviously a spectrum on this in terms of the struggle and the temptation and the failures and the wanderings of our heart as it regards our sin in lust. There's a spectrum. On one hand, there can, there can be this sort of quick, mental, spaced-out fantasy that's sexual. You need to take that thought captive to the obedience of Christ and put it to death. Lest that idea become embedded in our hearts and that uh, idea in our hearts then grow into full-blown sin, which then produces death. So we need to be careful on the spectrum. There's on the other end of the spectrum. The idea that the Christian faith is suffocating our sexuality, therefore I need to do away with my Christian faith. There's a spectrum on this. another passage in Matthew chapter 18 that parallels what Jesus is saying here about cutting out your eye and cutting off your hand. It includes cutting off your feet. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. When you take them all together, that means that Jesus is quite serious about what you see, what you do, and where you go. What you see, what you do, and where you go. David Turner said, since evil arises in the heart, amputation cannot cure it. And so it should go without saying that these two commands are hyperbolic. 
or an exaggeration. But the hyperbole shocks the reader with the real point. It is better to deal decisively with lust than to be thrown into hell because of it. Jesus is essentially saying to us, as painful as it seems to gouge out your right eye, or as difficult as it would be to live without your right hand, how much more painful are the fires of hell being separated from God eternally? Come on. Jesus is telling us, this is Kent Hughes, Jesus is telling us that anything that stands between us and him must be ruthlessly, even savagely torn out or cut off and thrown away. We need strategies to battle this. See, we fight lust with the power of the gospel that sets us free from sin. For we are told that when we are in Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin. And we are given the knowledge that we have been adopted as the very own children of God our Father. That's where we fight. That's the foundation we fight from. Your willpower will be involved in this battle. Your willpower will not get you free. We fight lust by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Sexual purity, hear me please, is an overflow of your life in Christ. It is not a precondition for your life in Christ. That means that you're not called to go out there, clean yourself up so you can be acceptable to God. He opens, you, he opens his arms to you and welcomes you, and he welcomes you with those open arms as you run into them, and he'll clean you. When we come receive Christ, we are made clean. We're faithful to confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all, un, uh, from, from all wrongdoing. He'll cleanse us. Sexual purity is not a condition for acceptance in the kingdom. Acceptance in the kingdom is by grace through faith in Christ. And sexual purity is the overflow of your relationship and your reunion with him. What that means is that we can gain victory over sexual brokenness when we see the arms of our Savior open wide and he says, come all who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. If you're tired of doing this on your own, let me help. See, we gain victory over sexual sin by understanding the depth of the love of God for us, toward us, so much so that he sent his son to the cross to atone for our sin once and for all. And he gave us his spirit that we might know that we are his and that we do not do this battle alone. That's the foundation for our battle in this. None of these ideas that I'm going to give you can be accomplished apart from the sufficiency of the work of Christ in our place. If you don't start out of the love of God and his holiness and his seriousness, the seriousness with which he takes sin, so serious that he sent his son to atone for it, to take it upon himself as he dies for our sin. If, if we don't start there, we lose this battle. But if we start there, I think these three things will help. First, mortification, a great word. Mortification. I think the best resource on this comes from a guy named John Owen who wrote in the 17th century, and in the 17th century, mortify meant kill. It meant put it to death. Basically, the whole little book that he wrote, the book's called um, uh, Of the Mortification of Sin in Believers. Also great titles of books in the 17th century. Of the Mortification of Sin in Believers. Basically, the whole book is an unpacking of Romans 8.13. This is what it says. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Just stop. If you live according to the flesh, you'll die. Death. 
But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, and he's talking about sin. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And this is what John Owen says. Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it'll be killing you. Christ City, we put it to death. Mortification. This is an active repentance. It's a change of mind followed by a change of action. And you've got to hear me on this because if there is not a change of action, I don't think repentance has occurred. It doesn't mean we don't struggle. It doesn't mean we don't stumble. But if repentance is not met with change in action, I don't know if it's repentance. It sounds more to me like remorse. And remorse and repentance are different. you can acknowledge and agree with God that something is sin, then agree with him in a way that produces change in your life. Notice in Romans 8.13, you're not doing it alone. It's by the Spirit, the Spirit who has set you free, the Spirit who has set you free so that you are no longer a slave to sin. You don't do this in your own strength. You can't do it in your own strength. And if you try to do it in your own strength, you'll fail and you'll get frustrated and you'll think that you're in bondage and that you're worse than everybody else. I'm telling you, you can only do it with a robust understanding of God's love and holiness and the way that he has united you to himself in relationship through Christ. And by the Spirit, we can be killing sin or sin will be killing us. Repentance, Charles Spurgeon said, is a discovery of the evil of sin, a mourning that we have committed it, a resolution to forsake it. It is, in fact, a change of mind of a very deep and practical character, which makes the man love what he once hated and hate what he once loved. Put it to death. If you're going to put your lust to death by drowning, I say hold it under the water until there's no more air bubbles coming out. Because when you start to walk away thinking it's dead, you do not want it to resurface and grab a hold of your ankle again. Listen, if you're going to put your sin to death, the sin of lust to death by blows, make sure you strike in a way that there is no more movement and no more pulse. Because when you turn around thinking that it's dead and gone and it grabs a hold of you, it will be a struggle again. Put it to death. Don't play with it. Don't keep it around thinking if it's in a weak state, you can just sort of have it around as a companion and a comfort in a dark time. I'm telling you, put it to death. Be killing sin. Sin will be killing you. Tear it out, cut it off, throw it away. The first is mortification. The second is confession. James chapter 5, verse 16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another, pray for one another, that you may be healed. The best resource I know on this is the writing of the 20th century German pastor, theologian, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He said, confession in the presence of a brother is the profoundest kind of humiliation. It hurts, it cuts a man down. It's a dreadful blow to pride. To stand there before a brother as a sinner is a humiliation that is almost unbearable. In the confession of concrete sins, the old man dies a painful, shameful death before the eyes of a brother or sister. Women, 
bring this to your friends who are in the faith, for you are not alone. Men, bring this to friends who are men, for you are not alone. And I like the phrasing of the confession of concrete sin. Don't go in with some kind of wishy-washy something, something, I feel this. Confess your sin and pray for each other that you may be healed. He goes on to say, Dietrich Bonhoeffer again, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him, and the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. God said, you can't do this on your own. You can put it to death by the Spirit, but your confession with a brother or sister in Christ will lift you. By putting your sin in the light, you are allowing it to be healed. By keeping it in the dark, you are allowing it to keep you in bondage. Third, I want to call replacement. We've got mortification, confession, and third, I want to call replacement. Set your minds on the things that are above. Colossians chapter 3. Look at verse 1. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. There's a replacement that needs to go on, okay? The best resource I know on this is a Christian psychologist. I think his name's Doug Weiss. Allison and I heard him lecture like 16 years ago. And what he talked about is the way that your brain literally gets remapped as you give yourself to indulging in lust and pornography. That it actually creates parallel neural pathways in your sexuality in your brain. And as you give yourself over to these things, that neural pathway gets stronger and more fortified and it becomes your default access to things that are sexual. That means as you continue to dehumanize another human being created in the image of God by viewing pornography, you are creating a neural pathway in your brain that is making it so that you see every person around you in that same way. It's changing the way your brain works. We need to replace it. So we take that lustful thought and we take that thought captive to the obedience of Christ and then we replace it by setting our minds on things that are above. The wisdom of Scripture tells us not only to put our sin to death, but it tells us to set our minds on the things that are above. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says we should flee sexual immorality. 2 Timothy 2.22 says we should flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. Do you see that? Flee and pursue. Flee, lust, pursue righteousness. It's not one without the other. It's not simply fleeing, and it's not simply pursuing righteousness. It's fleeing lust and pursuing righteousness. It's replacing the meditation of your heart. You can replace it with something like this. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Quite literally, displace 
the lustful meditation and the lustful intent in your heart with things that are holy, pure, righteous, and good. That's why scripture memory is a weapon. It is. Jesus says, tear it out, cut it off, throw it away. Tear it out, cut it off, throw it away. I'm saying to you, mortify it, confess it, replace it, and rewire your brain by fleeing sexual immorality and pursuing righteousness. What I would say to you this morning as I pray is that if God is speaking to you and you're convicted by the Holy Spirit, that there are things that need to be removed from your life for the love of God. Please listen to me very carefully. If you don't take this stuff captive now, you'll be sitting in my office in 10 years. If you don't take this stuff captive now, it will hinder your joy in Christ, the wholeness that he wants to give you. You are continually battering and breaking up. He wants to make you whole, but habitual sin in this area will fragment you. Please, for the love of God, consider this and pray for one another. That in your prayer of faith, the other may be healed. If you're sitting here today and you're hearing this and you are so condemned and you feel filthy and rotten and broken, please know that that is not how God receives you. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If this is something that you've been battling and losing, I'm telling you today can be the day where you begin to battle and lose. But don't live in the condemnation of that. Jesus Christ came to give life and life abundantly. It's our enemy who came to steal, kill, and destroy. And he would love to see your life riddled with lust. I don't care how old you are. I don't care if you're male or female. I don't care if you're single or married. Mortify it. Confess it. Replace it. Flee sexual immorality. Pursue righteousness. Do it for the sake of your family. Do it for the sake of your own soul. Do it for the sake of your brother or sister in Christ. Do it for sake of the accountability partners that you put in place following this. Do it for the sake of those who you know have great needs in this area. Do it for the sake of honoring God above and all, above all else. This was not a message of condemnation. It was an invitation to new victory and life. John chapter 3, verse 16 says that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Do you know what the next verse says? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus did not come to condemn. Jesus came to bring life, and it's available to you today if you want it. Let's stand on our feet. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christly Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristlyChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver and in the United States.